Hello, and welcome to this edition of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. Our first podcast was nearly three months ago, and since we started, we've had an impressive selection of inspiring guests and plenty of free-flowing conversation. I'm Dustin Planholt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie or a TV miniseries. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show today with today's featured guest, science fiction author Matthew Mather. Matt has a new detective novel, The Dreaming Tree, just coming out. The book is both a mystery and a thriller, wrapped up with Matt's trademark thread of science fiction. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically-focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. Or check out their website, POIIbogaine.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Now let's introduce Matt. Matthew Mather is the best-selling author of the science fiction thriller Cyberstorm, a book that 20th Century Fox is now developing as a film. Matt also had an upcoming detective novel, The Dreaming Tree, which was recently selected as one of the six most anticipated releases of 2019 by Ars Technica. Ars Technica is a website started in 1998 that delivers technology news, commentary, and reviews for passionate consumers of technology. The Dreaming Tree is the first novel of a new series that Publishers Weekly describes as a highly appealing blend of mystery, thriller, and speculative science fiction with relentless pacing, well-developed main characters, and a plethora of bombshell plot twists. Over a six-year span since publishing his first novel, Matthew's sci-fi thrillers have been translated and sold in over 24 countries, optioned for multiple film and television deals, including 20th Century Fox and NBC Universal, and has sold more than 1.5 million copies. His other works include Darknet, released in 2014, The Nomad series, released in 2015 through 2016, and Polar Vortex, which came out earlier this year. Matt graduated from McGill University, located in Montreal, with a degree in electrical engineering. Afterwards, he worked at the University Center for Intelligent Machines. He later established one of the world's first tactile feedback companies, which developed the technology for vibrational feedback, something that's used in everything from an iPhone to a PlayStation. He's also been a part of other startups. Matt divides his time between Nashville Tennessee, and Montreal. He lives with his wife, Julie, along with their two dogs. Matt's books are also available for order at MatthewMather.com. Let's bring him on now, Matthew Mather. Hey, Matt, glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, having a great talk today. All right, so before we get started, I got to ask, because you're on the road quite a bit, 
Um, are you driving an RV uh, or a U-Haul? How do you hit the road? And are there any tactile good vibrations along the way? <laughs> oh, hit the road. Yeah. No, How do you I get by, know. man? Three different places. How do you get there? <laughs> Three different places. No, I'm I'm pretty practical when it comes to getting around. Uh, I live in uh, most of the most of the year. I live in Montreal, Canada, so I, I get the biggest SUV that I can because we get about ten to twelve feet of snow up here on average, and uh, it's covered in ice about half the time. So, all right, something that's got lots of lots of ground clearance and big tires and and can and can eat up the snow. That's the most. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, I was gonna say you're you're kind of <laughs> like a, a manly man. Like I, I I saw you as as having something like that and not a Prius. Nothing wrong with a Prius, but I expected you to have a traveling car. Yeah, no. Well, you know, I, I don't. I don't know if it's really manly. It's just. It's just so that you don't get stuck in the snow. That's you know, that's that's my primary consideration. And also, I spend a lot of time up north. I'm actually in the process of building a house uh, about a hundred miles north of Montreal, up in the mountains. Hmm. Um, and so you. you that's really, really far. Wow. To. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's about hundred. Yeah, it's about that. About that distance. But uh, I'm really. I really enjoy the outdoors. So. Yeah, having something that's going to be able to get through those dirt roads and a little bit of mud is uh, is a good thing. All right. Well, your new novel, The Dreaming Tree, features Detective Delta Devlin of the Suffolk County Police Department on Long Island. Is this the first time she appears in your work? And if so, is she a character that we'll likely see again? Yeah. Yeah, so Delta is actually the, uh, the, the, the protagonist and the main character in the new series. So it's going to be... Um, kind of a science fiction detective murder mystery. It's a little bit of a mashup of a couple of different genres that I really, uh, that I really love. Um, and there's a couple of new twists in that one, but, but Delta Devlin is actually literally the detective that can see things that nobody else can. She's got, um, uh, since I studied machine vision way back when I started uh, my career about 30 years ago, um, I know a few, few, one or two things about how people, uh, how human vision works and, and there's actually a real thing where there's some humans that have four cones in their eyes instead hmm. of three cones. And so they can see, she can actually see a hundred million colors where a normal human can only see one million colors. So she can see 99 million colors more than, uh, than the, uh, than the normal uh, person. She's, she's like and my wife. My wife thing. seems to see everything out of place, every detail. So she's got pretty good eyesight. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is actually yeah no it's it's actually a real mutation that happens and it happens only in women not not surprisingly right yeah it's, well it's, I it's, I believe it I they seem to find the details yeah yeah so no, she's um she's the the the, the detective that's going to be the it's going to be a police procedural kind of thing going through detective murder mystery um, and the first book the dreaming tree is about a um, a guy that undergoes um, one of the first uh, head transplants, which is actually a procedure that some doctors very frighteningly, frighteningly are, are considering right now. Um, so this guy undergoes a, a, a head transplant as a, as a life-saving procedure after a car accident. Um, and the twist on this genre is that the he ends up having to solve the murder of the person whose body he's attached to, hmm. uh, together with Delta Devlin. So little bit of fun we're having. Yeah, that sounds like that, that's a lot of fun. Now, how do you pick a name? Like, do you change the name a few times? Do you, did you settle on uh, Delta Devlin? And how did this, how do you pick names? Uh, it's kind of an iterative process, especially when it comes to, uh, to main characters. Uh, I think Delta Devlin's name probably changed about a half a dozen times while I was writing that first book. Um, I had, uh, uh, 
you know, I, I kind of wanted her to be a kind of a mashup of different cultures. And so her mother's a Creole from, from, uh, from kind of Louisiana sort of background. And her father is, an, is Irish came over, uh, from, from Ireland. And so I was using kind of a, a Devlin, uh, last name. And then the Delta name comes from the Mississippi Delta. So it's kind of a mashup of those two things. Plus I just thought it sounded like kind of a cool, it does sound like I call uh, it triple D. Yeah. That's gonna be the nickname in the book. Triple yeah. D. Delta Devin, detective, detective Delta Devlin. And it's very and cool. It's, uh, and it's also the whole series is a little bit kind of, it's not quite a noir kind of, uh, detective novel, but it's a little bit dark. There's some, some fairly dark scenes and a few, you know, slightly disturbing things that are going on in there. So the Devlin sounds a little like the devil. So it's a little bit of there's a, so that's sort of, uh, as I was working through the names, I kind of came to that name as a, as a, to carry the series. So, All right, yeah. well, I'm going to be in Long that. Island. Now I'm flying into Long Island tomorrow. So that kind of concerns me that <laughs> this is going on in the neighborhood, huh? <laughs> Go, did you did you read through the novel? Yeah, there, uh, there is a serial uh, killer. I'm on my way. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to my destination if I got to go through Long Island. Uh, so, is, is there any connection yeah, between this novel, The Dreaming Tree, and the Dave Matthews song of the same name? No, there's no connection at all. Actually, I didn't, and believe it or not, I didn't even. I mean, I know Dave Matthews, and I'm and I'm a fan, but I did not know of the uh, the name of uh, his album or was it a simple song? It was an album or song until afterwards, and somebody pointed it out, and, and by that time, I was so invested in in the name. There was no um, walking it back, huh? You're already out there. Yeah, there's no, and, and in the context of this book, actually, it's that um, we're 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 dealing with this character that gets his head that that does a full body transplant, and so you're merging the 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 neural system of one body with another one. And so the dreaming tree in this case is the brain is the dreaming tree and the nervous system. So if you invert the human nervous system, it looks like a tree that's kind of sprouting wow, that, outwards that's, and upwards. That's fascinating. But it's it's a, a tree that dreams. That's kind of the bio so how, of the book. How, pl- how plausible is this? I mean, in terms of the tech, because the stuff you were working on back in the university, I, I imagine that was what, Gen 2, Gen 3? Like, is this, can this really be done within our generation? Yeah, this is absolutely. When I was writing this book, and, and I'd written part of the inspiration for this is writing because it was the 200th anniversary of the that Mary uh, Mary Shelley published uh, Frankenstein. But the other um, kind of motivation was that there's Dr. Sergio Canavero, and everybody can go look this up on on the web if they want. But has actually been talking about doing the first uh, full body transplant, and you call it a head transplant, but the technical term is a full body transplant. And, you know, you, you, heart heart transplants are you know are, are almost commonplace now, and face transplants, and they've done double arm transplants, and so wow. they actually have all the technology in place to be able to, if you surgically, and it sounds very freakish, but if you surgically cut someone at the neck, then you can go and reattach all the veins, and um, and they've done they've already done tests where they've taken animals and they've severed their spinal column and then reattached them. There's this chemical called fusogen which lets the, the nerve uh, packets go and reattach. So if you, if you do it in a surgical environment, it actually you're able to, uh, to, to fuse the nerves back together. So, wow. yeah, it's, 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 and that's, that's part of what I wanted to explore in the book. Yeah, you know, a, I'm trying to do like a fast-paced murder mystery, but we're, we're also exploring what are the boundaries of medical ethics. What, what are the boundaries? It is possible. Yeah, like if, if cool. you had an unlimited amount of wealth, and I don't know how much it costs to do this, but if an unlimited amount, why wouldn't you? Who would say at the end, no, I'm good, I'm done, if you could, I don't know, I guess, what, technically speaking, live forever. I mean, that's ultimately well, the goal, or at least to extend it to the point where the next tech comes out to, to keep you going. 
Well, that's exactly it. There's a whole there's a whole community of, of people, um, that, and, and most of them are very wealthy people that are looking at life extension technologies, and then they're looking at, you know, can you um, doing something like this? If you've got an unlimited amount of wealth and you and and you're morally loose and you'd be able to to get you know uh, young fresh bodies, there's you know, the technology is at the point where this would actually be possible, and. When you're looking at somebody, you know, I hesitate to bring it up. I don't know, like a Vladimir Putin or someone. Yeah. He, in his head, is he thinking, you know, some of the, some very wealthy people right now are thinking they're not going to die; they could actually live forever, and they might be right. Actually, um, there's something called the um, longevity escape velocity, which is if you can keep living for long enough, there'll be new technologies that'll come along that'll enable you to live for a little bit longer, and if you can get through the next thirty or forty years you have enough money, you might actually be able to live forever. And then do it again and, and just keep on going. And again and again, frightening, isn't it? Yeah, it We're it, living it, in science fiction It, right it now. is quite frightening. I mean, you, you look at the turn of the last, last century, so the uh, year 1900. Life expectancy was about 48. And now where we are today, between 78 to 82, with half of all children living to be at least 100 years of age. And they didn't know that walking among us are people that could be living forever at some point. And that kind of leads me into my next uh, what led you to write Cyberstorm? I and mean, how plausible is it that one catastrophic event after another could hit a major urban center like New York City? <laughs> yeah, this is um, so. So the readers might not be familiar. It's about a, a giant uh, cyber attack that uh, that hits New York City at the same time as a, as a giant snowstorm. Um, and Talking about plausibility, I kind of come back to things like an airplane accident. If anybody's watched Mayday on, on Discovery Channel, yep. they'll know that uh, an airplane accident is not just one mistake. It's a series of four or five unlikely mistakes that end up in catastrophic failure. So, you know, maybe you could handle this mistake and maybe you could handle that switch going off. But when you when you stack up two or three things, one on top of the other, um, you end up with a catastrophic failure. Um, and so Cyberstorm is... An examination of what happens if you have two or three or four um, events. So, and the reason why it's called cyberstorm because part of it is a cyber attack, but the other part of it is a physical storm. So it's climate change. You have you know increasingly large storms. It could be you know a hurricane happening, or it could be a giant winter storm, or it could even be a heat wave happening at the same time as you have a technological failure. And you superimpose those two things at the same time, you know, perhaps with other things, and you can have these massive catastrophic failures, especially when we're, you know, 40, I think about 20 years ago, the majority of people lived in uh, rural areas, whereas today, um, I think about 60% of people live in uh, urban areas and mm -hmm. giant cities. And so the cities are getting they bigger change. and bigger. They're Cities don't produce any food. I don't know if you know this, but there's not a You're lot of farming. Me. Goes I didn't know. I thought it all went underground, huh? It's not like it was back yeah, in Rome. No. So, so a place like New York City has to have, you know, I don't know how many, 10 million eggs a day delivered into it. And if you interrupt that supply chain, just even for one day, you're going to have total chaos, you know? And, and as soon as you have, you know, you have even a slight bump in the road, like something goes wrong. Somebody says there's an outbreak of, you know, a, a, a bird flu or something. Everybody's going to go straight to the, you know, for, for New Yorkers, they don't, if you live in the, in the countryside, you have a freezer full of food and you have some wood stacked outside. You live in New York, you've got a bag of pretzels and a bottle of wine in the fridge. That's about it. That's right. That's all the real estate you have to be able to store it. So that's, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's their, that's their emergency supplies. So if you have an event happen, people go out to the, the stores, empty all the shelves out. And then if you have an interruption in the supply chain, 
very quickly you're going to have yeah. some very panicked people um and and yeah there's there's a whole there's a whole lot we could talk about in terms of of that but i think eventually you're going to have some type of uh some type of disruption yeah now i was living in new york city at the time i'm sure you remember a number of years back when the power went out uh, that was a moment yeah. that i will never forget i was in the subway i was on a train from new york city to brooklyn and the train stopped not a big deal and traffic jams kind of happen and the subway system but this time the lights went out they, they didn't come back on and people were starting to panic and then someone came through with a really fancy flashlight and said, we don't know what's happening up there. All we know is the lights are out everywhere. That's all we're being told. And when that fear kicked in, I had a backpack full of protein bars thinking to myself, all right, good, I, I have enough to get me through at least for today until panic strikes in with the rest. Uh, we waited there for about two hours and they let us, they said, don't touch the third rail. I guess I didn't know when the lights come back on. And then we had to walk through some soupy, swampy uh, water fudge uh, up uh, through the nearest subway entrance, and us, along with tens and tens of thousands of New Yorkers, were just walking, walking everywhere. And of course, immediately, as you might imagine, there was nothing left on the shelves, and there was no water. Uh, the stuff you needed, exactly. there wasn't exactly. anything available. So I understand when you wrote this, and when you put this out there, you said, it is not a question of if, it's when. And if it's a snowstorm, if it's a tornado, if it's a hurricane, if it's a solar, wind, whatever it is, it will come, and if you are not prepared, it's going to hit you the harder and the hardest. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And, and in the increasingly complicated world that we live in, um, you know, there's a there's concept of resiliency of, of how much uh, a system can be knocked off balance and then come back to equilibrium. But there's also a, a concept of, of reversion. Like, a, for instance, like when we used to uh, use a, a you know, horses and buggies to get around, and then we, we started to use cars. Um, the problem is if suddenly the cars stop working, we can't go back to using horses because we already killed all the horses. That's so, right. You know, there's not a lot not of prepared buggies. for there's this. Not a lot of, yeah, so, so that's just one example of technology. But, like, another one is that uh, these, these um, I have friends that, uh, that design logistics networks for, you know, the large, um, uh, you know, food companies. And so instead of having 20 different distribution warehouses in, in Manhattan, they start to have two distribution warehouses, you know, in, in New Jersey and another one somewhere else where they're doing just-in-time delivery and they're delivering all this stuff in these extremely complicated networks. The moment that you have a, a disruption to one of those supply chain networks, everything will, will kind of grind to a halt because they're all designed on very complex mathematics and everything working. And as soon as something stops working – you don't have those 20 supply warehouses in the city anymore. They're way out in the countryside where nobody knows where they are. And, and so it's, it's a little bit frightening realizing the kind of the knife edge that we're, we're actually balancing ourselves. Yeah, on we seem to be right. right at, at, was this one of the reasons why you took off and at some point you were living in the UK? I mean, I, I imagine you can probably control the higher ground from there. No, I was actually born in, uh, in Sheffield, in, in the north of uh, in the north of England, and uh, so I still have uh, most of my family there and in London. Um, and my and my wife actually has a family home in Somerset, in in England, where my where my father was born as well. So we've got a lot of family over there, and we spend a bit of time there. But I spend most of my time here in uh, in uh, in Montreal. So there's. That wasn't the reason why I left England. I was very young when we left yeah, there. And, there. And then the, but, the home that you bought there, was it a young home? Was it an older home? 
Oh, well, the home that uh, my family, uh, my wife had over there is, uh, is like a 400-year-old, very, very <laughs> so, old home. So I, I got to ask but, you, I, there are a lot of people are going to want to know, what's it like sleeping at night in a 400-year-old home? Does it feel like it's haunted? Oh, my God. Like, it does just creep you out, man, <laughs> to close your eyes like you hear the noises. I can, so th this place is, was called Ash House, and um, it was more than 400 years old. It was I don't know, four or five hundred years old, or maybe even older. It had this basin, uh, basement in it that had like these archways, um, and it was supposed to be connected to all the churches because back in the day when they had the, the the English Civil War back, I don't know how many hundreds of years ago, and you had the Roundheads versus the Whigs. They so the people in the house actually built tunnels into the local churches so that you could you know you could get to sort of a, a you're not supposed to attack people in churches anyway. So yeah, from the I'm basement of this huge house, nine bedroom house. They have these tunnels from the basement. And so you go down in the basement and you look at these tunnels and it's just a very frightening. And it was all, of course, it was all filled with all these old farm implements, like these huge scythes that are rusting and, you know, attached to the wall. that looks like something <laughs> yeah, right out of a horror movie. I, so, I've seen a movie like that. So, I've seen a TV show called Walking Dead. That's kind of a scene from that as well. And also the, the top floor was filled with like old furniture from like a couple hundred, you know, like a hundred years ago, like a, like somebody's, uh, you know, like a wheelchair that people had to carry to put, you know, so the really frightening things. Um, and there's once one, one weekend when my wife went away to a stagette party um, with her girlfriends and I had to spend um, the weekend by myself in Ash house. And <laughs> yeah. I tell you, uh. I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a superstitious person or I don't, I, I don't think I believe in ghosts, but yeah. I went through the entire house and turned every light on in the house. You made sure. Was this the moment yeah, you I needed a Delta person with you? It was like, I need the Delta Force <laughs> to guard me. And Delta <laughs> Devlin was made, made up that night. Yeah. So I, I don't believe in ghosts, but I even, even I, when I was staying in Ash House by myself, I would, I would turn all the lights on. It I'm didn't such a baby feel. I, I totally get it. I, yeah. look, I had to ask you, like a 400-year-old home, that kind of creeped me out, man. It uh, was it was a bit creepy, and the cup, yeah. there's been a, it used to be um, it used to be back in the day it was um, um, an inn, so there were quite a few people had reputed to have died in there, and all kinds of stories, and, and um, yeah, all kinds of there's all kinds of stories attached to that place. So yeah, exciting. wine cellar, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so. Talk about your fans, you know, your relationship with that community in this world. I know with, with the Life Stuff podcast developing fans around the world, uh, we have some people that are quite dynamic, uh, others that leave you alone. How do you deal with that? I, I really like to, um, uh, to keep in touch with my fans. I've got a, a, quite, a, um, quite an active social media presence on, on Facebook for people that want to get in touch that way. I've got a, a mailing list of um, close to 200,000 people um, and that I send out quite regular, you know, updates on books and when I'm going to be out doing book signings at different events. Um, and I have people email me every day, probably 10, 20 people a day, uh, send me emails, and I do my best to uh, to respond to all those. And also I do, I do regular uh, video interviews um, that I promote through, you know, through the various channels and talk to people and give away books. So, I, I like to stay in touch with people, and I and I really appreciate the fact that people buy my books and support my life. And it's uh, you know I think it's a you know, it's a two way street. So yeah, that for me that's very important, and it, it is time consuming and a little bit exhausting, but uh, yeah, I think it's well worth it. I yeah, do enjoy I talking mean, it's to people. when you are pouring your heart out in your books, and some fans obviously will enjoy your work. What's it like when you go online to an Amazon? 
and you see somebody has left a less than stellar. What's that feel like? And by the way, I say that, and I got my uh, my co-writer here. We've got a book coming out called Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher, uh, memoir slash inspirational read. It'll be coming out uh, early fall. And so I'm kind of preparing us for what's it like to have someone say, I didn't like it that much. <laughs> well, you know, I've... Uh... I've been I've been a writer for um, I kind of switched careers about um, six seven years ago. Um, to begin with, when you have people leave negative reviews, you kind of get your back up and your hackles come out, and you and you you know you want to know why they didn't like it and why you leaving such a negative review, and this is how I make my livelihood and all that. And then nowadays, I just you know kind of water off the duck's back. And people people will leave nice reviews. I you know sometimes I'll. I'll I'll message him and say thanks for the nice review. Um, and I, I generally read almost all, pretty much all of them, actually. I go and read once a week. I'll sort of go and scan through the reviews on, on the books and see what people are saying. Um, but nowadays, after, you know, I've got 11 books out and... Uh, 11 books? Seven years into... Wow. And I've, I've, probably got, I've probably got about, you know, going on fifteen or 20,000 reviews on Amazon um, in total, I think, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten past the point of getting upset about a negative review. And quite honestly, books are like wine, you know, they're not to everybody's taste. There's some wines that are, there's like the really expensive Chianti wines in France. I hate them, hmm. <laughs> you know, even though they are like expensive and, and, and have a long history and they're some of the most beautiful wines in the world. I go, I just, I can't stand yeah, it. This wasn't it's for like, you, you know, Basically, yeah, tastes like garbage to me. But, I'm, you know, I'm like that with that certain cigars. That. I go, I don't know. I just didn't didn't do it for me. So about your writing routine, yeah. uh, do you write during the day? How many words a day do you do you write? And do you, do you take a snack with it? I mean, how do you keep going? What? You want to you want to get into the, the technical mechanics? I want right? the mechanics. So, I want you to lay it out. Just two guys having a conversation. Tell me your routine. You wake up. Every guy has you, to go to the bathroom, and then you begin. Or how's a start? If you want to be a writer, I've, I've talked to a lot of writers, and it's pretty much the same across the board. It's uh, the very early morning hours before anybody else is awake. Is you know maybe not before anybody else is awake, but when I'm in writing mode, I'll wake up at four thirty, five in the morning, um, and just try to get to writing right away. That that's from sort of six a.m. till ten or eleven a.m. Um, those are the prime writing hours. There's something about the combination of the early morning plus the first thing that you do in the morning that your your brain is in this sort of uh, creative active mode where it wants to solve problems and where you where you really enjoy going off on a tangent with a character and you're sort of going with them whereas later in the day it's like a struggle and you're you feel like oh I don't feel like doing this and the later in the day I can I can answer emails and I can um, you know, do, you know, expense reports and things like that. But early in the morning, those, those, you know, six, eight, you know, 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., that's your, those are your golden hours for, for, uh, for writing. And I was, I was a night owl before I became a writer. Is that right? Switched you, switched, like a, you switched to up. being an early morning person. Wow. Yeah, I totally switched. I've gone day, literally night for day. That's <laughs> the opposite. The opposite. So how many words do you try yeah. to put in? Like, is there, I want to do 2,000 oh. or 12,000. Like, what is your number? Yeah, I typically do two thousand words a day. Is sort of a goal. If I do, if I do, I dropped my pen. That was quite a few. I, I kind of went two thousand words. That's I don't know if I knew that many. Two thousand words per day. Huh? Yeah, I I think uh, you know if I'm in writing mode, kind of hitting sort of an eight thousand you know eight thousand word week is is uh, pretty good if you can keep that up. But when you're actually writing a book, 
it shouldn't take you more than two to three months to actually write a book. Like that's the, you know, that that's the actual writing time. I mean, the, the time to plot the book. Um, I was talking with um, the guy that wrote uh, Bone Collector. What's his name? Anyway, and we had a, we were on a panel last, uh, uh, last year together and uh, he spends, you know, eight to nine months plotting. So all he's doing is writing out the plot and, and all the twists and the turns but then when it comes to the actual writing, it's always, it's the same thing. Um, uh, you know, pretty much every writer that I know, it's, it's, you know, at a concentrated two month kind of three month thing where you actually get all the words on paper and then you've got an equivalent sort of two or three months of, of sort of, ha- you know, of, of editing, uh, to get the thing into shape afterwards. Um, so yeah. I've been sort of following kind of an eight month per book, uh, path for the last six years, I guess. Uh, all right. Well, that's, that's phenomenal. So will you work on multiple projects or, or do you kind of stay focused on that one thing? No, I just do, I do one thing at a time. I'm, I'm horrible. As soon as I, as soon as I get my, my head onto something else, I have a, I have a really hard time turning the ship and that's actually been a problem this year because we've been um, designing this uh, or in the process of building this house up North. And so the second I go, I get sort of derailed and start thinking about the house design and talking to the architects. It just, it almost ruins my entire day. Like I, I can't kind of turn back around. So that's why it's important to get up in the morning, do your writing right away. And then once that's out of the way, you can do all the other stuff and sputz around and, you know, do everything else you want, but got to do that writing right away in the morning. All right. So who are the writers that have had an influence on you or who resonate with you? Like how does somebody get your attention to take the free time you have and to read their work? I've been, I've actually been pretty horrible lately, to be honest. I, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I, I used to read all the, um, uh, sort of science fiction and fantasy, you know, classics like Tolkien and, 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 um, you know, C.S. Lewis and uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Was I would have thought you would have been like an R.L. Stein guy. Huh? You didn't dig into that? Yeah, a little, a little bit there, but I, I was more, uh, Asimov and, and right. uh, Ben Bova uh, and, you know, a pool and, and people like that. Those are more of my uh, sort of uh, influences. And I always actually wanted to, uh, I always thought of being a writer, but I'd never kind of got around to it until I was about 40 years old. Um, and uh, yeah, but since then, you know, and I tend not to read other science fiction writers because I don't want to be influenced by what other people are doing. I kind of want to do just completely my own thing. Um, if I'm reading, I'll tend to read things like Nicholas Sparks or something just to, to try and, um, uh, up my sort of relationship writing games. Yeah. I, I'm already pretty good on the science fiction stuff. So yeah, that I, I need more, I, yeah, I, I need more help on, on, you know, the relationships and the, the more, um, the, the more emotional, um, side of, of, of writing. That's something that, well, that, uh, if you're into cookbooks, we, we have an upcoming guest. Uh, that has written a number I of cookbooks. Cook. I love cooking. Do, do you? All right. Well, well, good. So let's talk about that. What's, uh, uh, what would be the number one meal? You say, Dustin, this is the best. Like, what is the thing that you cook or you make that you, is that one like crown achieving moment? Oh, I can't, I can't put that down to one thing. I all love right. Cooking. Give me a couple. Like, give me like, I'll all right. Cook. I'll give anything. I can, I can do a, a good magleta canal, the duck breast. I can there's a real there's a real art to getting a, a nice duck breast and then salting it the night before and letting it come up to room temperature and then you know doing if you're going to do it on the grill just doing it on sort of the opposite uh, side from the grill and getting the right temperature and letting the fat melt over it it's uh, you know it's not um 
it's it's more of a technique kind of thing. So that's uh, getting get doing a really nice grilled duck breast and having it still sort of raw and you know right that sort of blue in the middle and, and yeah that's that's beautiful. You, that you does sound that really thing. good. I had lamb last night ago and I wonder if I should have this tonight. This tastes this uh, this tastes like it I, sounds delicious. I I can do a I can do a very I can do a really mean uh, pan fried foie gras as well. Uh, oh, if I, if you get me in, yeah, that's an, that's quite Scandinavian. That, that's what my wife loves. She is a foie gras fanatic. Yeah, I'll get a I'll get a nice lump of foie gras and then kind of slice it about an inch thick. You get and to do to do foie gras, you need to to heat the pan up till it's just smoking hot. You put in your your foie gras and then you've got to keep on continually taking the fat out and just keep on like dry sizzling that piece of uh, foie gras in there, and then afterwards I'll uh, usually do like a maybe a blueberry and um, uh, maple syrup reduction and then put it on like a molasses cookie or something oh, and put man. the blueberry and maple syrup on top of that with the foie gras. That's oh a nice, man, that that's sounds a nice cool. little starter right there. Oh, that, that yeah. does well. Maybe yeah, you should do like a let's say like a quasi <laughs> a yeah quasi cook show quasi sci-fi cookbook. <laughs> Oh, like a dipstodian type thriller of here's what you can use along yeah, the way. Um, cooking, yeah, I could do it. I haven't, cooking I, I haven't seen that yeah. done yet, by the way. I've never seen somebody come out with, all right, you're on the run, you're on the lamb, here's what you're going to do. <laughs> you're, you're cook, cook your way out of it. Yeah, you're going yeah, to tap into that tree over there for some syrup, and then you're going to hand over. <laughs> I, I, by the way, we love, I, I live in, in Montreal, which is in Quebec, which is the... Um, which is the maple syrup uh, capital of the world. I think we produce about 90% of the world's maple syrup up here. We even have a, a strategic reserve of maple syrup. Oh, come and, uh, on. This is and, like, and, you guys like hold oil like you hold maple, maple syrup. You're going to use it against do, us here in Baltimore? And, but, you know, that something that not a lot of people know is that there's different tea. If you're in America, you go to the, and you go maple syrup, you see it on the counter, and, and, you're, and you're happy you just got maple syrup. But we, up here, we've got different grades. We've got like the ombre, and we've got the. the, the, the uh, hold on, all right. Let's slow down. Middle, all right, some of us aren't blue blood, apparently. You talking about you got grades yeah. of maple syrup? We got grades of maple syrup, and not even that, but we've got we've actually got like regions, so I can have like <laughs> maple syrup from regions. a certain from a certain from a certain mountain region where they got like the south facing maple trees, and yeah, I'm serious. Like wow. the actual maple syrup cans we get up here actually have got stickers on them telling you what farms, you know, what what areas they've come from what grade they are. Uh, it's a, it's a whole, that's a great barter so when, system. When I, when I get, when we, when I go for maple syrup, it's not just, you're not just getting maple syrup. <laughs> this it's is, like, you, know, you got to know your, this your is variety a, that, and everything this, else. This is like me going to Wegmans. Yeah. yeah. Going to Wegmans, looking at their cheese <laughs> selection. That, that's Matthew. Like, all right, what kind of wine is this after dinner with wine? <laughs> what kind of maple syrup we have yeah. tonight? Now, are you a maple syrup? Uh, maple syrup on bacon? Good. Like how? Like how? Like deep oh, were you yeah. going? You put maple syrup on everything. Yeah, that's the right thing. Even I did it. I did an oatmeal last night. Like I'm telling you, maple syrup is beautiful. You know, and and maple syrup. I'm gonna. I don't want to go on too long about maple syrup, but it's a low glycemic. It's different than other sugars. <laughs> Please do. We got a lot of health yeah. fanatics out there. Tell us. Tell us about the additional yeah, uh, benefits to it, there, Matt. And, and there's also maple water, which they started to sell, uh, which is – so the stuff that you get right out of the tree, uh, when you know you make maple syrup, you reduce it down by about, I think, I don't know, like 60 or 70, 60 or 70 to 1. But when the stuff comes right out of the maple tree, it's, all, it's like a clear – it's like uh, just a slightly – very, very slightly sweet uh, but clear water that comes out of the maple tree. And it's got a lot of 
all the nutrients and all the stuff that's coming out of you know the sap of the tree. Um, is this so brain food? All that up here is, well. is that what this is? Brain yeah, food? Is that can, why you're so smart? You can, you can actually get it's like coconut water. It's maple water. Maple you can actually water. Get like bottles of maple water. Oh yeah. man, you got to come out yeah. with that in your website, your own line of maple water in a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> the cyber cookbook. This is this is what you Maple want. Syrup and foie, foie gras. Like you live on those <laughs> so, do you have any desire at some point to work on the film adaptation, or you might be working on it right now, and not at uh, not at liberty to say? Is that something that's happening around you? Yeah, you know, I've uh, quite a few of my books have been optioned for film and TV. I got a great film agent in New York City. Uh, still shout out the Hotchkiss and Associates. Uh, to Sean Hotchkiss. So they've done a good job in, in optioning my, you know, with NBC Universal and, uh, and ITV Studios in England and uh, 20th Century Fox. And, and they send me, you know, checks, which is nice. It's nice to have the checks. Nothing wrong, wrong with that. For all the maple syrup. Yeah, a lot of maple syrup. But, you can uh, buy one of those things. Yeah, the best maple syrup. Um, but the problem is it's kind of one one step removed. And so to begin with, I was very excited. Well, I'm still excited when, you know, like a big name company wants to, you know, is interested in giving me some money for, for one of my works. But um, uh, I haven't had any luck in getting something greenlighted. And so I've taken more of an active uh, role. I've started to talk to the actual screenwriters and, and develop proposals uh, for people like Netflix. And, um, uh, you know, now you've got Disney and you've got um, uh, Amazon. And, and there. I think there's going to be something like $25 billion spent this year on new original content for the streaming services. Wow, so just the streaming I want to get side. into that game. I, yeah, I, want, I want just a little, I want a little piece of that $25 billion. Yeah, look, I, I know a few people that I'll make some introductions <laughs> behind the scenes. So t- take me with you. Can I be your be your assistant? I'll, I'll hold your coat the whole time. It's going to be cold where yeah, we're going. Yeah, so, so I'm... So I'm actually I'm I'm, re- I'm, I'm meeting with uh, so I'm I, now I'm I'm going a little bit further upstream and so I'm talking to actual screenwriters and seeing if I'm can partner with them. So if I come up with a concept for a book, I'm going up you know saying can I can I uh, partner with the screen you know the screenwriter, um, and then even going one you know one step further and talking to the actual producers. So I've got a couple of producers that are fans of mine. So I'm actually like this week actually tomorrow I'm going out and meeting with some producers. Um, just to talk about projects and, and, you know, uh, and, and it's, you know, ultimately it's kind of a sales process. Like I can sell somebody the, the film rights and they can, you know, it, it can sort of die in the water, but if you get more involved in the whole process, I'm hoping that that can uh, encourage the, the whole thing. And, it, and it's also interesting, you know, maybe I could get involved in doing some screenwriting or get involved in the, the, the original content production or something Abby like that. So, that. You could add yeah. that to your resume. I mean, from where you've yeah. been and what you've done, you're always looking for a new challenge. Is that something that you grew up with? I mean, when did you learn how to become so resilient? How'd you do it? Uh, um, I, I have no idea. Probably my, well, it must be my, you know, everything starts with your parents, I guess. They're, you know, they've raised some, uh, some, some great kids. My, my sister, I'll do a little shout out to my sister. It was Sarah Mather was, um, hi Sarah Mather. She was a fine, yeah, she was. It was Sarah Lake. Now uh, she got married, and, and she's married to uh, to Ernie Lake, who actually is uh, uh, been nominated for a couple of Grammy awards. We'll say hi to Ernie as well. Um, but uh, my sister Sarah, so Sarah, as Sarah Mather, she was actually finalist on American Idol um, back with Carrie Underwood. She was um, roommates with Carrie Underwood in, in that season of American Idol. Um, and so she's uh, been just, uh, and now she's uh, living in Nashville and is a songwriter and. One of her uh, 
um, songs has just been um, Reba McIntyre's cutting the thing for, and my just had a new album out. And my brother's uh, amazing career going is that to work, being a professional squash player. Um, some people say my family seems like like the you know the flight of the Concords with all these people doing these crazy things. <laughs> They're all um, up to something, huh? Everybody's up to something. So yeah. I guess that comes from, you know, probably the, the roots in your in your family as well. I believe there there yeah. is some sort of code, an ancient code that gets passed down and and the genes you have and the things that you're doing, somewhere along the way, they were probably not a storyteller. They were someone that was a prophet. And they were prophesying about here's what's gonna happen one day and I'm preparing you for when it happens. And I find that that's, that's really what you do. You see what could be. You see what you know will happen. It's just a matter of time. And you do everything you can to help prepare others. Uh, you even make sure that you're, what is the old saying, practicing what you preach. Uh, that's something rare yeah, exactly. to find among authors, the people that not just believe it, but they live it. And so let's talk about the next around speculative fiction and science fiction. I mean, are there differences or are we just splitting hairs? Well, I mean, speculative fiction, you know, science fiction is speculative fiction, um, you know, after fashion. Now, I think, you know, that, you know, what you could argue about what the first science fiction novel was and what exactly it means. Um, but increasingly, I mean, you, you pick up, you pick up the paper today and we're living in the middle of a science fiction novel. You, you know, you've got a, a little tiny device in your pocket that you can pick up and talk to somebody in Australia. We've got, you know, billionaires that are talking about building moon bases and having rockets land on their tail fins like Tintin. And, and we've got, um, you know, we've got uh, the, the, the military is building these attack robots that, you know, you know, run through the forest like like wolves. And there's and we have gene edited babies. There's all these stories like Man. how much more like th- these are things that are happening right now. We've got, you know, with, Elon, we've got self-driving cars, we've got flying taxis. Like this is, you know, this is the, when people in the 1960s wrote science fiction, they were, they were writing stuff about what's happening right now. Like we're living in the we're, we're science fiction it. novel. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're living it. So it, be, it becomes increasingly difficult to, uh, to distinguish the science fiction from, uh, from reality. But actually, I'm just going to go back to your question. I think the whole purpose actually of science fiction, speculative fiction, is to create a, um, a hypothetical world uh, where you could use whatever device you've created in that world as a mirror to hold up to society and, and to reflect that back on the, um, you know, on human, on humans and human beings. It's, it's never about the technology. It's always about the humanity. And, uh, and that's what science fiction is ultimately, uh, speculative fiction is a tool for is for us to examine ourselves in the light of things that might be possible in the future. Yeah. And I think it also tends to present opportunities to go over ethical dilemmas. And so what's your approach to tapping into those ethical issues? How do you approach them? <laughs> well, I think, um, you know... Uh, the truth will set you free right. right here. Give it to us. The truth will set you free. Oh, my God. Uh, that, always, that, that's, that statement always frightens me. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever been to Auschwitz with the, you know, the, the work will set you free thing over the, yeah, that's, over uh, the yeah, entranceway. That's, I haven't seen that for quite some time. That, that, was the, uh, that was our manipulation they used, huh? Just tell us everything. Yeah, so it's, um, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, we're talking about, like, this is all about stories, and I think that I had to live enough life. One of the reasons why I decided not to write, actually, when I was younger was 
my mother told me this. She said, you probably need to live life before you can write about it because you need to need to write about life and you need to encounter some of those moral conundrums and, and you, you need to have a little bit of the humility of, of not thinking that, you know, you know, having that, um, the, 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 you know, the, 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 uh, the moral quagmire that you can get stuck into, even when you have the best of intentions. And I think living a bit of life gives you a little bit of perspective as you get older, you know, as I get older, I can feel my brain actually slowing down. Like I'm not as quick as I used to be when I was in my twenties and thirties, but I still seem pretty fast. uh, I I can't imagine how, how quickly you ran back then. This is you slow. I go, Oh man. Yeah, this is not, you can, you can actually, it takes a little bit longer to, to remember things and a little, you know, not quite as snappy as it used to be, but, um, uh, you, you gain an experience and you gain an understanding and you gain, I guess, uh, um, just a sympathy for for the world and for people. Um, I, that's anyway. That's what happens to me as I get older. I'm probably going to get more grumpy a little bit later on, but right now I'm kind of in that sweet spot of not too grumpy, but my brain's not too quick either. All right. Well, I'm going to quiz you from the past. So, at the end of Cyberstorm, <laughs> you talk about how cyberspace and outer space, and I'm going to add MySpace, are similar. Could, <laughs> could you elaborate on that a little bit for us, there, Matt? Yeah, you know that's actually a really interesting topic that's um, that's, that's come up uh, lately. And so the first thing is, so cyberspace is the whole space of you know us connecting and talking with each other via electronic you know uh, messages and, and the web and everything. But but cyberspace um, is really no different than space. Like a lot of space is actually uh, part of cyberspace because you got the communication satellites and it's bouncing stuff around. That's got a, a, like a lot of the physical infrastructure of cyberspace actually is out in space. And, and space is kind of from a, from our point of view, actually space is just part of cyberspace. Uh, so that's one interesting uh, perspective. That, that um, is. Uh, that, that, and another one is, yeah, yeah go ahead. I was going to say, does this make you, are you a big uh, crypto algorithm or digital asset crypto fan or, because of your knowledge of what can happen, do you stay away from it? Um, you mean cryptocurrency? Yeah, are you a cryptocurrency uh, guy? Yeah. <laughs> no, I do not. I had cryptocurrency when I wrote a book called Darknet uh, about four years ago, where I delved into the whole world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and um, on, on, on all that stuff. On, uh, on a, you know, as an electrical engineer and as somebody that understands cryptography and all that sort of stuff, like I, I, thought, I found it very interesting. I, I do think the 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 future of things like cryptocurrencies, you know, they're not. I have a hard time seeing because some of the weaknesses in the way that they're structured and and what they are exactly. They're really just kind of a speculative market. I don't see. Personally, and there's going to be a lot of haters out there when I say this, but I don't see like a huge feature in in cryptocurrencies as like an alternate to to money. Like when people say it's digital money, I go, well, how much money do I actually have on me right now? All of my money is digital and in banks, and it's all encrypted, and you know, like it's we already have digital money. Um, but uh, when it comes to blockchain and things like distributed ledgers, I think that there's a massive feature in that for. For um, for authenticating transactions, for doing things like uh, share, like uh, uh, instead of having like a, instead of having to have a stock exchange where we have shares and you have a ledger, the stock exchange is a single point that has a, a record of who owns what shares and a ledger. You can have a distributed ledger, which is a blockchain, which can do that kind of stuff automatically. It can you can have a recording of, of transactions. There's a whole 
I think there's a whole bright future for distributed ledgers and blockchain type of technology for a whole lot of different uh, human interactions. But I'm not super keen on um, cryptocurrency as a speculative currency kind of thing. Uh, that you, was kind of a lot of words. Yeah, that was. Well, you did a great job summing up uh, fr from your take and your lens. And obviously, I like to I like to ask people their takes on it of what they think will be the future, the future technology or the future even of money. Uh, toughest person you've ever met or the toughest person you've ever known? Or it could be people. Who would that be, Matt? <laughs> I'm going to try not to get broken up here, but my dad passed away um, uh, in November last year. And, and he, he was in, um, uh, he, he had cancer and he went through a very difficult surgery. And I'll just say he, he had an esophagectomy where they took out hmm. his esophagus. Oh, and, boy. Uh, I'll just, yeah, I'll just say that um, for anybody else out there facing this thing, I'd think twice about some of these really uh, aggressive surgical procedures. That some, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not a doctor, but, you know, like when, when the only tool you have is the, the hammer, everything looks like a nail. And some of these um, surgeons sometimes, I think, they, they didn't fully explain some of the complications that you could face with this type of surgery that he went through. Um, so I've just warned anybody out there to, to look carefully, maybe look twice or three or four times before getting something like that. Anyway, he went through a very difficult time, uh, in the hospital and he went through an eight, sort of a two month period, you know, trying to get over this surgery, which he ultimately didn't, um, did not recover from. But one time towards the end, he had to put him into, uh, an induced coma and, um, he was under for about five or six days, and you know, and, and they had to put things. They had about ten tubes coming in and out of him. Oh, obviously, a lot of pain, and they, they couldn't put him on pain medication, and he could barely move his arms. And anyway, when he came out of it, and we he woke up, and I went and got my mom, and we were, you know, and the family were talk, trying to talk to him, and he couldn't talk, so he had to use a, a board. And uh, we were saying, you know, what could we do for you? And, you know, like we're trying to, t you know, talk to him and see how he's doing. And he took the pen and he, he started to write on the board and he said, how, you know, are you okay? You know, he asked me if I was okay. So, Powerful. He, he wanted to make tough. sure that you were good. Now, I look at the times in our lives when we, when we lose somebody, in this case, you lost your dad. How do you continue? Yeah. Do you, do you write now for him uh, I guess I imagine having to think about your dad and think about your own story and how you got here. Um, I lost my sister this August to be five years. She was my family. And that was something that I struggled with and I still struggle with is how do you, how do you make sure that everything you're doing, you're, you're making sure they're proud of you. Is that something that you think about of what, what he's thinking about where you are in your journey? Yeah, no, of course it's something you think about. I mean, he was my, he was my biggest fan. So, um, yeah, I mean, with your dad, you know, I, um, <clears throat> you know, I, you, you want you want him to be proud of me. You know, I want him to be proud of everything I'm doing. So I think it, it makes you want to be a better person um, for me, anyway. So I, you know, um, yeah, I don't. Wow. <laughs> try not to get broken up about it over. Well, we're speaking it, it, on here, but it, it <laughs> still sounds, a little bit fresh for me. He, he sounds like an incredibly inspiring man that left one hell of a legacy. He, he created you. I mean, that was his legacy, that, that he gave you all the love he had. He gave you everything. He held nothing back. And now here he, you are he on the he Life's did. Tough podcast, and you're telling us his story. When everyone wants to ask about you, yeah. I go, that shows quite a bit of humility. Well, any uh, final words you have for our listeners today, Matt? No, I don't think uh, I, I could have gone on and on about space and cyberspace and, and a lot more things. I probably could have sat and talked to you. We could have had a 
could have had a beer while we we're having. We could have. Well, then we'll make sure. Maybe we do it hours. one day, and we'll do it in Montreal one day. We'll do a round two. The maple syrup. Yeah, no, <laughs> maple like syrup on the side. And, <laughs> yeah, go and look at my website. It's www.matthewmathewmather.com. You can go and look at all my books on there. If anybody wants to email me, you can message me. I'm fully available and usually answer them pretty quickly. So, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have anybody read some of my books. And thanks very much for having me. Are we, we're at the end of our conversation today. Uh, that, that we're, we're towards the end, but i got to leave it with this. Life's tough, but Matt's dad was tougher. Thank you so much for coming on today, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you. You already know life is tough, and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com financial.com to learn how Carl can help you get tough on business securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Inc member FINRA SIPC so that wraps up our show for today thanks again to Matthew Mather for making this another outstanding episode of our life's tough podcast and thanks to you our amazing audience for making the life's tough podcast one of the most relevant, engaging, and fastest-growing shows around. And also special thanks to my dear friend Gerald Levin, Life's Tough, Chief Writer, MI Sherpa, and Alston Carlisle Studios in Baltimore. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. Instead, I ask you to use your story to empower others. Your story may be just what it takes to help somebody in your circle or perhaps in our community, to help get through a tipping point moment, an instance in which that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a situation. Please subscribe to our show, visit lifestuff.com and be sure to join us every week for a new stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Remember, everyone has a story and every story has a purpose. Life's tough, you could be tougher. Thanks for listening and have a great week. And for the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Planelt signing off. Remember, life's tough, but Matthew Mather's dad is tougher. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>